I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And for four weeks, we have worked our way slowly through these words known as the Apostles' Creed. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, and it simply means I believe. It's the the first couple words that we read when we read the Apostles' Creed. But as we learned in the first week of the series, and something I want to keep coming back to, and something I want to keep reiterating to us is that as we took a look at the fir- at the meaning of the words "I believe," that we have to be careful in how we approach these beliefs. That as we looked at this, as we began to say this, and this is what I wanted to see from the very beginning, as we looked at the creed, that it's not just some kind of belief statements. It's not just things that we just say and we say we we believe these words, but there's something else going on here. It's more than just simply belief. See, what's true that these are belief statements. The goal is not to simply memorize these statements as truth statements. See, if we just got to the end of the series and we were able to just simply recite the creed, I feel like we would have missed a huge point throughout this sermon series. And the point is this, that they show us something, that they guide us towards something. It's why I believe these words have, have uh, survived through, all of t- through, through so many years and, and have worked out through the test of time over 1,500 years. Followers of Jesus have said and read these words because they reveal something deeper for us. Now, this might sound counterintuitive to us, okay? but just follow me here for a second. Christianity isn't best viewed as a belief system. Now, let me say that again. Let me repeat that for us because I think it's counterintuitive, but I want you to lean into the tension of that statement because I think for a lot of us, we grew up with the idea that if I just had the right set of beliefs, if I just had the right set of beliefs about God, if I had the right set of beliefs about Jesus, if I had the right set of beliefs about the church, if I had the right set of theologically theological beliefs, that somehow that is pleasing to God, that somehow that is what the goal of following Jesus is all about, that somehow that's the goal of the Christian faith. But let me just say it clear again. Christianity isn't best viewed as a belief system. This is why it's so important to me when we talk about the mission and vision of Southeast that we talk about exploring the way of Jesus. Exploring the way of Jesus means that we don't go up to some kind of road sign and we just memorize what it is. It means we actually walk the path. It means that we take that direction. It means that we follow Jesus going somewhere. And so there's some, there, there's some trust in that. There's faith in that. There's, there's this idea that, that it's not just about knowing all the details. It's about trusting and believing that it's taking us and that we're going somewhere. 
Another definition for what, what really is the best way to understand Christianity, the way of Jesus, is that it's a set of practices. Now this is key, centered around the way of Jesus. It's a set of practices centered around the way of Jesus meant to transform us. See, sometimes this gets so goofy and gets so messed up. People think that if I just, I memorize these certain scriptures, I believe this certain kind of way, or I just hold this understanding, that somehow I've got it all right. But we read that backwards. We need to read everything through the way of Jesus. And it's through the way of Jesus that our lives are transformed. It's through our, the way of Jesus that we are changed. See, that's so much better than a belief system. Because when you believe something, all of a sudden you look at everyone else as outside. But when you think about a journey, when you think about this idea that it's something to be explored, when you think about it transforming, all of a sudden that adds all kind of layers to it. It becomes more invitational. It becomes more grace-filled. We become more loving as a result. We don't see ourselves as simply saying, hey, here's are the beliefs that everyone else should see and believe. Instead, it becomes that we become uh, ourselves seeing ourselves as being guided and guiding others towards a more loving, just-filled, grace-filled way of being. See, if I could, if I could just close out today, if you, if you decided after this, you know, listening to the beginning of the sermon, if you decided right here and I just ended the sermon at this point, I would say the most important thing that we can do in our lives is say that Jesus doesn't simply want us to believe. Jesus wants to transform our hearts and our lives. That is the essence of Christianity. That is the essence of following the way of Jesus. And it's why I love this series. And that, again, seems counterintuitive because we're reading some belief statements, but I see that they are more than that for us. As we've gotten into these statements, as we've explored these, as we're going to look at them over the next few weeks, we're going to see they are an invitation they're an invitation to see what God wants to do through us, who he created us to be, to be changed and to change the world for good. These don't just simply point to uh, truths about God or truths about us or truths about the church or truths about Jesus. They point us to a way of transformation. One way that I put this, and I put this in my notes today, is that we say we believe because in these words, we find something that transforms us and shifts us. When we really explore these words as an invitation, they have the power to transform how we see our world, how we see God, and how we see ourselves. See, that's what it means to learn. That's what it means to grow. That's what it means to be transformed. It means that we're constantly looking. We're constantly asking God, help me to see the places that need to be transformed in my life. Help me to be more like Jesus, to have more grace and love and mercy and goodness. This is the invitation that we find in the Apostles' Creed. Now, this also isn't always easy. As we look at the words, we look at the phrases in this creed, we're going to find words that are going to seem unfamiliar. They're going to raise questions. Maybe they seem confusing. We find language that pushes back against some of our modern sensibilities. And we're going to particularly find that today as we come to the third clause of the creed. 
What I want you to do is I want you to lean into the tension with me on this. You know that I always say when there's something that I don't quite understand, maybe or I find tension in, or it pushes back against my modern sensibilities, maybe the best thing that I can do is lean into that tension. Maybe I can begin to ask some questions. Maybe I can say, what, what is here that can help me understand something deeper about my faith? Maybe it's more than just a statement. Maybe there's way more going on here. The third clause of the creed that we're looking at this week says this, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, listen to that in context. Joe, you can put that back up for a second. Listen to this back in context. I believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Now, before I say this last one, if you're wondering, okay, so what does it mean about creation? What do I do with that? Go back, listen to how I talked about this. If you want to talk about what it means to believe, again, go back and listen to the first couple weeks of this. I think it's so critical for us to see this. But listen again, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And what do we do with this clause? To begin our journey of exploring this clause, we turn to one of the most used but misused passages in all of Scripture. And that passage is Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Now, the reason I said that this is one of the most used and misused verses in all of Scripture is because this is one of those passages that people recite to each other when maybe something's going wrong. Uh, maybe this is one of those passages that you see, um, you know, on some framed in some kind of artwork. And we just kind of take it out of context and we just sort of use it. But I want to say that sometimes when we do that, uh, and honestly, almost all the time we do that, we have a tendency to pull this out of context and misuse this verse. We miss the point. We miss how it connects to all of Scripture. We miss what it really is telling us about. We end up applying it to our individual lives. And hear me out. When we do that, we play a dangerous game where all of a sudden every moment is set in stone in some kind of cosmic plan. And when we do this, when things go bad, we blame God and we think we're being punished. Or we look at this verse and we see it as a promise that bad things will never happen, that God is meant to lavish us with wealth and prosperity. It's easy when we take this verse out of context. We rip it out and we see, for I know the plans I have for you. And all of a sudden that you becomes me or it becomes you. And we read this verse through our individual lives. But five words will help us avoid misusing this passage. And I have to be honest with you, these are sometimes some of the best five words that you can say when you read scripture, is this. This verse isn't about you. This verse isn't about you. And that may sound disheartening at first, because sometimes when we look at Scripture through the lens of our lives and we try to pull them out and see how they apply to our individual lives, it feels good. 
It gives us some sense of hope. But that's not where our hope is supposed to come from. Not out of misused verses taken out of context. Our hope is found in Jesus, in the community of Jesus' followers. And seeing that we're part of a much bigger story. And that's what this verse is actually going to point us to. I want to show you that instead of this verse being about you, when we see it in context, it's going to show things so much more clear. And here's why. The you in this verse is plural. The you in this verse is plural. For I know the plans I have for you. And what's happening here is this is a promise to a group of people. See, when we realize that, we discover this verse has way more meaning for you and for me. Taken in context, we see that this is bigger than any one of us and far better for all of us. Let me say that again because I want you to hear this and I want you to begin to think about that. Because when we say this verse isn't just about me, we see that it's bigger than any one of us and far better for all of us. That can apply to so much of scripture. That can apply to so much of faith. That can apply to how we see ourselves in light of Jesus and our relationship with each other. The good news, the way that Jesus cares and loves for us, the love of our Heavenly Father is bigger than any one of us. And it's far better for all of us. Now to see this, we have to back up a few verses. And the context becomes clear and we begin to see something happening here. Jeremiah 29, 4 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, do you see what happens? If you just look at the verse and say, okay, this isn't about me. There's something bigger going on here. It causes us to say, well, what's going on then? It causes us to look ahead in the verses. It causes us to look back and see it within the context. And the context is, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those. To who? To those I carried into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, that causes us to ask some questions. Well, who are these people carried into exile? What is that about? What's going on there? Now, we've talked about this a little bit before, but let me just uh, sum this up a little bit. These words were written to the people of Israel who believed a promise that God had made to their ancestor, Abraham. That promise was that through him and his descendants, the world would be blessed. If we read on, we find that this promise was fulfilled. Those in exile returned. The nation of Israel restored. God's plan for a future and a hope was bigger and better than they could have ever imagined. But to see how that took place, to see how God fulfilled this promise to these exiled people, and then to see what that has to do with us, I want to go back to the promise that Abraham gave. I want us to explore this within a much bigger context, because there's an important piece here that I don't want us to miss. I think it changes everything. It changes everything about how we see these verses. It changes everything I think about how we see ourselves. I think it changes how we see this clause in the creed that we just read and why it has meaning for us today. So let's go back. Let's go to Genesis 12. So when God says, for I know the plans I have for you, he's referring back to a promise that he gave them, that he's going to fulfill this promise that he gave them. 
because they're in exile now and it's so easy for them to be like maybe god doesn't care maybe maybe god maybe i'm outside of god's plan maybe god has given up on me and you go back to this promise and he says no 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 i have plans to prosper you not to harm you i'm going to fulfill the promise that i had given you that i gave your ancestor abraham you're going to see a hope and a future through that so listen to the promise that he gave to abram because this is fascinating in Genesis 12, it said, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, we come back to this verse a lot. If you've been around Southeast for a while, um, you know that I like to come back to this verse because I think it's so critical for us to understand the story that is being told through Scripture as people experience God, as they experience what God is trying to do in the world, as they give their lives to, to His plan and what He's trying to do. It all comes back to this idea. Go from your country, your people, your father's household. He promises Abraham, I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And then the key, why? And you will be a blessing. God's overarching plan, weaved throughout the story of Scripture, is to bring blessing to all the nations through the descendants of Abraham. But this is key. As we look at this, as we realize that his promise is to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless this world through you, through your descendants. This is the key. If at some point there were no longer any descendants, the plan would fail. And this is one of those things that you begin to look at, you begin to realize it's going to open up for us some ideas of how we're looking at things. It's going to help us to see why there's certain stories, why there's certain focus on certain things in Scripture that may seem odd to us or it may seem, I don't understand why that story is included or what that's all about or what that has to do with. And we see that it all comes back to this promise. The nations will be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. But what would happen if there were no longer any more descendants? Now this key realization is huge because it helps us see why we have all these miraculous stories through Scripture connected to motherhood and children. And there's a lot of them. It seems like as you turn the pages of Scripture over and over and over again, we come back to miraculous stories of motherhood and children, and we wonder why is this here and what is going on here, and we see that this is directly connected to this promise. Now, we don't have to look very hard to see one of these stories because the first one comes right away. As soon as the promise is given, we see the connection and the relationship here taking place. So God gives a promise to Abram. He says, I am going to bless this world through your descendants. And immediately there's a tension because Abraham doesn't have any kids. Abraham doesn't have any descendants. So how is God going to fulfill this promise? And it's a tension we find right away. And so if we see that, if we begin to connect those dots, all of a sudden it's like a flashing light telling us, hey, pay attention to this. See this because this is going to come back and it comes back over and over and over again. But let's see where it shows up that first time. Genesis 17, starting in verse 15, it says this. 
God also said, so God immediately says to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nation. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now listen to what it says. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And when I read that story, like I just had to stop for a minute because I love that it says, Abraham fell face down as he laughed. One of my favorite gifts that I share with my friends is that baby that starts laughing and all of a sudden it just falls over flat on the floor and just starts laughing. And I love that. And it just like, like here, here's, here's an idea. Like, this is totally just free advice, but if you're having one of those days where you're struggling, you're having a bad day, one of the greatest things you can do is open your phone, find some gifts, and just look up laughter. Just look up laughing, and you will find all these things, and that's one of them, is this baby, it's just, he's laughing, he just falls over, and you can't help but smile, and that's what I think of when I see this. Abraham fell face down, and I just love it. He is completely just fall over laughing and says, how is this supposed to happen? You just promised me that you are going to give me descendants, and through my descendants, the nations will be blessed, the world will be blessed. He says, have you looked around this world? Have you seen what's wrong with this world? And you expect that to happen through my descendants? And he says, but I don't even have any. He says, I'm 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. Are you serious? What, what do you expect here? So imagine the person telling us this story. What they're saying is, guys, sometimes you look at this and you say, this doesn't make any sense. Can't believe God is working through this. Why would he do this? It's supposed to make us stop and go, this, this is crazy. But it helps us connect back to this promise. He says, this is the promise that I made. This is how I'm doing this. And I want you to pay attention to this. And so over and over again, we see this promise fulfilled. And we see this promise fulfilled right here. Sarah miraculously ends up, if we read the story, ends up giving birth to a son named Isaac. But here's what I want you to see. God gives them the promise. The promise seems crazy. It seems ridiculous. It doesn't even seem possible. And then God miraculously, as the story tells us, God miraculously provides an answer to that promise. But he doesn't stop there. If we continue on the scripture, this theme keeps coming back over and over again. Next, we have Moses. Now, Moses was miraculously saved as a baby, and he would eventually miraculously save the entire nation of Israel from slavery. Once Israel got to the promised land, God raised up judges to lead them. One of them, Samson, was born to a woman who was told that she would give birth miraculously. Years after that, a prophet named Samuel uh, was born to a woman named Hannah in another miraculous pregnancy. Over and over and over again, we see this repeating. And when you see things repeating in Scripture, the point is that we're supposed to connect it to something bigger that is happening. It's like a huge signpost telling us, look what, look what is happening here. There is a theme and there is a reason to this. God has promised his promise through the descendants 
of Abraham. So at these huge points in history, shifts in the story, we find the promise of Abraham being fulfilled through these miraculous stories connected to motherhood and children. And I tell you all of that because that is the backdrop. That is the setting. That is the context for the opening of the New Testament, the stories that we read at Christmas. So rather than seeing as we open up the stories that we read at Christmas about the birth of Jesus, about his cousin John, we shouldn't see it as a surprise. We should see it as a theme that is connected back through the stories of Scripture. John and his mother Elizabeth, her cousin Mary, and the child that she would give birth to miraculously named Jesus. So, now that we're there, let's read that story. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So here's what I want you to see. Why we started out where we began as we, as we open up the sermon. Why it took us through the story of Abram. How it connected to the miraculous births and stories of motherhood and children that we find throughout the scriptures. It comes to this point because the story of Jesus' miraculous birth isn't a random, disconnected story, but has deep roots in the story that God has been telling throughout the scriptures. When we say the lines of this creed, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. What we're doing is we're placing Jesus within the larger narrative of God's plan and promise. And this is such a huge thing for us, I think. See, sometimes, Joe, can you go to the, um, to the creed, to the slide with the creed? So sometimes, and you can put it full screen, that's fine. Sometimes when we come to this, and we read these statements, again, we see them as some kind of belief statements. Well, we did that with creator of heaven and earth. Just go ahead and keep it full screen. When we get to the creator of heaven and earth, and I showed you, this isn't about some sort of way that we understand creation. Uh, we're not supposed to ignore science or anything. That, that's not the point of it at all. It was showing us that he is the creator. 
that we can't just do things on our own, but that we understand that we're part of something so much bigger that is going on. And so then I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. It's not just belief statements. It's recognizing that Jesus was a man who walked, who is a king, who has a beautiful kingdom that we are a part of, that is actually a part of God's plan, his only son, meaning that this kingdom is connected to the grace and the mercy and love and justice is at the heart of God. And that he is our Lord because we give our lives to him, because we recognize and see that anything we try to do on our own is not even close to the goodness that God wants to bring in this world, which brings us back to this statement, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It's not just to say that I simply believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's not simply to say that I believe he was born to a virgin named Mary. It's to say that I see that this connects to a huge story being told throughout Scripture. That I see that this is another miraculous story that helps me see and helps me connect all the way back to the promise that was given to Abraham that he wants to bless the nations through his descendants and that this connects and comes back to Jesus. This is huge for us. Because it helps us not to disconnect Jesus out of the story, but to see Jesus within the story. To realize what God has been doing and how he's been working. It's incredible. Listen again to that promise to Mary that we find in Luke 135. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary trusted. The song that comes after this Mary's song is a beautiful song of trust and faith. The words of that song show that Mary understood how this was connected to this greater story that God had been telling. She responded with joy to God's promise. And then listen, this is key. She didn't just respond to that promise with joy. She brought that promise into this world through her life. And we are invited to do the same. As we ask the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God miraculously continues his promise. Listen to the verses uh, that we find in Romans 8. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, said this to them. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So we started this with the promise given to Abraham that God would bless the world through his descendants. 
And we saw that the story didn't just end there. And it didn't end at these different points that we saw God fulfilling that promise. Through the different people that were born, or the exiles returning, the nation of Israel restoring. We saw the hope and the future that God had pointed to was being partially fulfilled. That there were glimpses of full fulfillment. That story of rescue, redemption, and renewal that was promised to Israel found its complete fulfillment through the birth of Jesus. So what we find in these words, and Jill, I'm sorry, go ahead and put it up again. (laughs) What we find in these words of the Apostles' Creed, if you can go back to that, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I want us to see something amazing when we say these words together. That what we find as a creed is, is a guide for us to not see Jesus in isolation. We're meant to see Jesus as a part of the story that God has always been telling and a story that God continues to tell. See, this is why at the beginning of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we find these long genealogies of Jesus. They connect Jesus back to the story that God had been telling for generations through the story of Israel. And these connections help us understand this clause that we're looking at. It transforms our understanding and it transforms our lives. This is how I wrote it down and how I want us to think about this. The words of the Apostles' Creed who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, were invited to see Jesus. Born through the power of the Holy Spirit against the backdrop of the promise that God gave to bless the world. And through the same Holy Spirit, we're invited to see our own story against that same backdrop. Here are my words of prayer today for us. May we see the promise of God throughout history, seeking to renew, rescue, and redeem this world. We are not the first people to look around and wonder what's going on. We're not the first people to look around and say, is there a hope? Is there a future? We're not the first people to wonder if God is going to continue to answer, continue to speak, continue to bring life into this world. We're not the first people to do that, but we come back to the scripture and we are reminded that he has given us a hope and a future. We see that he has given us humanity. He has given us the church. He has given the people of God a future and a hope. Promised throughout the scriptures, given glimpses of through the future, through the scriptures, fulfilled through Jesus and given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So may we see that the promise was fulfilled in Jesus. May we see the way the Holy Spirit has worked throughout the story of Scripture, miraculously working in and through people to bring about the promises. And finally, my prayer for us today is may we see how the Holy Spirit can work in and through us today miraculously transforming our lives as we follow the way of Jesus. And that is why I have come to love this clause. Because it reminds me of what God has done through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and how throughout the scriptures God has fulfilled his promise and continues to fulfill his promise. And it is an invitation to you and to me 
to ask the Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives. That His promises may continue to be lived out in this world as He transforms us as children of God, followers of Jesus, believers of the goodness and the love and the mercy and the grace of our Heavenly Father. May we be a blessing to this world, not out of our own power, not of our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, I am tired of trying to live within my own power. We cannot, through our own strength, bring the change into our own lives and into this world that brings the goodness of your kingdom. Only you can do that, God. Father, I don't understand all the time why you chose to work through us. But through Jesus, I see the promise that your Holy Spirit was given to each and every one of us. That as we follow Jesus, that you miraculously transform our lives. Father, help us to not shut out the way that you want to work in and through us. Help us to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives and into this church. God, that is the only way that you restore, renew, rescue this world. Through your love, through the gift of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through this world. Help us to see that. Help us to grab onto that. And help us to see the incredible promises that you have given. God, help us to be a part of what you are doing and what you desire to do in this world. Work through us, Father. And we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives today. Amen.